0: information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to another episode of Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast presented to you by Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a section of American Physical Therapy Association. Our topic of discussion today is cervicogenic dizziness. Cervicogenic dizziness is a complex topic, both for orthopedic and vestibular clinicians. We have a very distinguished guest today with us, Dr. Robert Landell. Dr. Landel is a Professor of Clinical Physical Therapy in University of Southern California, Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the Herman Oster School of Dentistry at USC, where he is the director of PT residency and fellowship programs. He is a Catherine... Worthingham Fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association, a board certified specialist in orthopedic physical therapy, a certified strength and conditioning specialist and a certified manual therapist. Dr. Landell has published on a variety of topics in orthopedics, vestibular rehabilitation, and concussion, and has received national teaching and research awards, including the Gold Excellence in Teaching Award from the Academy of Orthopedic PT and the Associates Award from USC, the university's highest teaching honor. His clinical interests have been in cervicogenic dizziness and the diagnostic dilemma and management challenge posed by patients with persistent post-concussive symptoms. Welcome to the show, Rob.
1: Thank you for having me. It's an honor for me to be here. Thank you.
0: We are very excited to have you. As you know, the diagnosis and treatment of an individual presenting with cervical spine dysfunction and associated dizziness can be a very challenging experience for our clinicians. So what do you tell the audience? What actually is cervicogenic dizziness?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's, it's used maybe as a diagnosis, and the term is used as a diagnosis, but really, uh, it's no more a diagnosis than shoulder pain or low back pain is a diagnosis. It, it basically is just telling you that the patient is experiencing dizziness and that it's suspected that the dizziness is coming from the cervical spine, as opposed to the myriad other places where the dizziness might be coming from.
0: So why do you think the term should be, um, is relevant to be used?
1: I, I think cervicogenic dizziness is, is fine, just as long as we understand that it is a broad, um, you know, term, uh, just the, the, the word dizziness by itself is a very broad term. So we can uh, certainly our patients will use the term dizziness to explain or describe a lot of different symptoms that they may be feeling. Uh, if they say that they f- they're feeling like they're spinning um, or they are rocking or they're bouncing around, uh, like like on a boat, rocking on a boat or bouncing up and down. Like on a trampoline, those are all sensations of movement of self or surroundings, and, and we would call that, and you know, as um, trained healthcare professionals, we would call that a uh, vertigo. Uh, but patients may say, "Well, I, I'm dizzy," and they mean actually what we would call vertigo. Um, they may call what they are feeling we what we might call di- um, imbalance. Uh, or, or problems with their posture control, they may also refer to as dizziness. So because dizziness or dizzy, being dizzy is a very broad term, That uh, then the term cervicogenic dizziness is very broad, but it does suggest that it's coming from the neck as opposed to, for example, the central um, nervous system or the peripheral vestibular system.
0: Yeah, thanks for taking me into, your, uh, into my next question for you. Um, like you said, dizziness, yes. Um, a lot of patients are gonna explain it differently and some really have difficulty even explaining what dizziness is. Now, um, you already mentioned um, these symptoms can mimic other conditions. What are the usual cases that you see and that you have to differentially diagnose when, you, uh, when someone comes to you with cervicogenic dizziness?
1: So that's a really, really good question and and really gets at the heart of the matter. Um, It is uh, important that we all understand that cervicogenic dizziness is a diagnosis of exclusion because we don't really have a single test or even a battery of tests that would indicate to us that, yes, you definitely have dizziness that's coming from your cervical spine, What we have to do uh at this point in time is exclude other causes of dizziness and the the way to go about doing that of course is is find the causes of dizziness that do have tests and measures that indicate whether you have it or you don't have it and uh, apply those tests and measures and then um, and say okay you 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 don't have dizziness coming from a central nervous system problem. You don't have peripheral vestibular uh, dizziness or vertigo. Uh, So we can rule those out. It's not due to medication. You don't have a cardiac issue that's causing your dizziness and so on. And in the end, then what we're left with is uh, the cervical causes, particularly if we can associate problems in the cervical spine with the symptoms that they're feeling. And by associate, what I mean is uh, typically we consider uh, it necessary to have complaints of neck pain that coincide with the complaints of dizziness. And that if the, if the neck pain and the dizziness covary, in other words, the neck pain gets worse and the dizziness gets worse at the same time. And if the neck pain is better, the dizziness is better. Then, because they co-vary, there seems to be an association between the two, and we can start to say, you know, I think the, the the neck is involved.
0: So, my next question for you, um, Rob, was, you know, being a diagnosis of exclusion, do you still see um, clinicians miss this as a diagnosis? Um, does does do patients really take a long time to come to you when you are doing patients who are who are um, who are, you're treating patients who have cervicogenic dizziness, or it's pretty easily patients will come to you and it's a short time duration that people will be like, "Oh, it's cervicogenic dizziness, and let's go ahead and treat you for that.
1: That's a, that's a really good question. I, I think the answer to that is it is evolving. So it wasn't that long ago where it was cervicogenic dizziness was considered controversial. And, um, its existence was considered controversial and, uh, many people would say, well, if it is coming from the neck, then it's a vertebral basal or insufficiency or something like that. And, uh, which is an oversimplification, I think of, of what it's actually going on. And, and in the, in recent years now, it had that controversy, I think is going away Uh, You can you can actually you know you know when it's become mainstream when you can find it on WebMD right (laughs) yes (laughs) search it there it is on WebMD so it must it's risen at least to that level uh, (laughs) to be included so sort of like when something hits Webster's then you know you know it's an actual word so uh, so that's important Uh, however having said that it's becoming more accepted which is great but still there aren't a lot of people who are comfortable uh, identifying it and, uh, and then moving on and, and treating it or managing it successfully. So um, I, I think that there are a number of people who are very, very good at identifying the vestibular causes of dizziness and managing those. Um, I think um, that it's still a bit problematic um, to have in a, in a single individual the rather diverse skill set required to treat the vestibular problems that we may see, that that could be causing a dizziness, and the cervical problems that could also be causing a dizziness, and and so the marriage of those two skill sets, uh, I think is is improving, uh, and I'm very hopeful for the future, but um, is still a bit problematic.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I've had some physicians. Um on multiple occasions who would be like, yes, yeah, cervicogenic busyness does not exist. And I will meet um, physical therapists um, who have excluded all the other conditions for patients and have treated them for their neck dysfunction and have seen good results uh, in that group of patients. So um, I agree with you, still a controversial matter. Some still do not think it's, um, ex- it's existing. Um, and um, I think I agree with you. This marriage of both orthopedic and vestibular um, efficiency in a clinician is really going to help um, someone be better at, um, you know, diagnosing this problem. So moving towards that, um, when a clinician is going to think about this, what do you? Uh, what are the first few things um, that a clinician um, should think about? Like, what is the pathophysiology of cervicogenic dizziness um, if we take the very first step um, when we're understanding the healthcare condition.
1: Um, The the underpinnings for it are becoming more and more well understood. Um, I don't think we have a handle on everything that's going on. However, it does appear that a a sensory mismatch between what uh, the uh, somatosensory inputs from your cervical spine are telling you about your head movement and position in space and, and relative to the rest of the body are in conflict with what your uh, vestibular and your visual systems are telling you. So you get the sensory mismatch that um, causes the problems. And so the, uh, the best analogy I can give you is if you sprain your ankle, you know, it's it's pretty much a given that you have to incorporate uh somatosensory retraining or proprioceptive retraining in your ankle you know post ankle sprain rehab program and we know this we know it's a problem uh post-injury and we know that if you don't manage these things then the chance for re-injury is is much higher (coughs) sorry we also know that these somatosensory proprioceptive and i'll use somatosensation to include not only proprioception, but sense of pressure and stretch and, um, light touch, deep pressure, um, basically all the information that we get from the periphery about, uh, from all the various, uh, sensory receptors that we have. Um, we, we know that you have reduced mass sensory information after a knee injury, ACL, for example, meniscal tear, things like that from hip injuries, from shoulder injuries and on and on and on. So um we actually know that you have problems you can have problems after you injure your cervical spine or patients who have cervical pain can also have can also demonstrate these somatosensory deficits and we can pick that up by uh using a joint position error testing or cervical repositioning error testing um so um, so we, we know the cervical spine isn't necessarily giving us the most accurate information about our head movement and, and uh, um, position in space. Um, now that the difference between an ankle sprain and a neck sprain, so let's say you had a whiplash injury, so you have a sprained neck versus an ankle sprain, uh, is in the cervical spine, we have the duplicative uh, information about head movement and position Of our visual and vestibular systems and we don't have that down at the foot and ankle so we can get by so the, the good news is we can get by with less information coming from the cervical spine because we have the other two systems to help us out however uh we are accustomed to having all three of the systems agree with one another and when they don't agree with one another then we get symptomatic And then the best analogy for that or best example of that really is seasickness. So if I'm down below decks on a boat, that's moving, it's rocking and shifting and so on in the, in the ocean, uh, but I'm below decks and I'm in a, uh, closed room, the room looks visually stable to me, but yet my somatosensory and vestibular systems are telling me, Hey, you know, you're actually moving and rocking and so on. And that mismatch is enough to cause seasickness and it isn't until we go above decks and we, can see the horizon moving relative to the ship or the boat, uh, and then it makes sense with what our vestibular and somatosensory systems are telling us. Then we we don't have that conflict anymore, and we don't uh, you know we don't either get seasick if we're above uh, deck or uh, we feel better. So removing that conflict is or resolving that conflict is a key to managing you know, cervicogenic dizziness in this case. So we have this mismatch. Our, our neck is not telling us uh, the same thing that our eyes and ears are telling us. And, you know, that it, if you turned your head 10 degrees, let's say, and your eyes said, yeah, you went 10 degrees and your ears said, yeah, you went 10 degrees and you went in this direction and you went this far, but your neck said, no, you went 20 degrees or your neck said you're going five degrees or whatever. <clears throat> then your, your, your brain is basically going, well, which, which one is it? Who do I believe? and that conflict sets up the symptoms.
0: Very similar to uh, if you have a vestibular dysfunction where the system will primarily rely on um, vestibular system. Um, very interesting. Now you mentioned um, that there will be a sensory mismatch. Um, have you seen in this group of patients a true sense of vertigo, where they will have a sensation of actual environment movement, or they are they don't really experience that um, full sense of vertigo in the environment? It's more a uh, self-perceived sense of uh, movement.
1: The that one of the characteristics of cervicogenic dizziness is there is no true vertigo, particularly there's no spinning. So if, if, if I have a patient who says I'm dizzy then tell me what the dizziness uh, feels like to you, uh, are you spinning? And they say, yeah, I spin. Um, that to me is not coming from the cervical spine. That's probably semicircular canal. As a matter of fact, could be central, but it's more likely more commonly going to be coming from the peripheral vestibular system. So um, that actually, to me, moves cervicogenic dizziness down on my differential diagnosis sus- suspect list. Um, so the sensation of movement of self or surroundings is not characteristic of cervicogenic dizziness. You get much more vague complaints. of you may have complaints of imbalance, but not enough to cause you to fall unless you've got other comorbidities, uh, going along with that. Um, you may, I've had patients say, I I feel uh, woozy. I feel off. I feel spacey. My head feels light, but not lightheadedness, like orthostatic hypertension. It's light. Like my, my head's filled with helium. It feels like it's a balloon. You know, it's not even connected to my body. And it's just, I walk down the hall and my head's just sort of floating next to me. Uh, so those kinds of vague complaints to me are more characteristic of cervicogenic dizziness than, I'm spinning, you know, um, that to me is, or uh, I feel like I'm going to pass out, you know, that to passing out is presyncope. That's that kind of lightheadedness is sends me towards a cardiovascular diagnosis. Um, and then spinning sends me towards vestibular
0: My next question to you is this, um, do you find cervicogenic dizziness existing independently or sometimes do you also notice it associated with any of the other conditions um, that you mentioned?
1: You know, I I think it's rare that cervicogenic cervicogenic dizziness exists on its own. Um, I've been looking at this for a number of decades and I can probably count on two hands the number of times I've had a patient who is just cervicogenic. There's typically something else going on. Um and they, and so in terms of you know what other conditions does it come on? So if you sort your patient population into traumatic onset and atraumatic, on the traumatic side, um, we we think a lot about concussion as being a brain injury and and certainly that's very worrisome that you know we've, we've suffered a traumatic brain injury um but a concussion or uh, a concussive event or in other words an event um, that imparts enough force to the body that causes a brain injury to occur that concussive event is very very likely to also cause problems in the neck or damage to the neck so we we have uh, there's some biomechanical studies that suggest that um, you know typical acceleration for a concussion is about 100 G's, whereas a mild neck brain can occur at, at around five G's. So, you know, it takes 20 times the the acceleration acceleration forces to produce a brain injury than it takes to produce a cervical injury. So if you've, if you had a concussion or you suffered a concussive event, it's quite likely that your cervical spine has also been damaged. Um, Now on the flip side, we think about whiplash and we think a whiplash, so a neck injury, but the head gets whipped around too and gets thrown around quite a bit. And so it's not unreasonable to think that you could also have a brain injury underlying a, a whiplash injury. So, uh, I think those are two that go together and they're, they're really tough to sort out. Um, to me, that traumatic onset is is really tough because you, you never know what happened during the traumatic event and kind of all bets are off as far as everything. You, you have to just walk into that, assuming that uh, everything is involved and start trying to rule things down for the idiopathic onset. Um, it's a little more um. it's trickier only in that it's more subtle. So the the problems may be uh, hiding in there and you have to go dig for them. So problems in hyper or hypomobility in cervical spine problems with uh, lack of strength, which you can pick up, but then lack of control, which is harder to pick up and and certainly very difficult to quantify um, at this point in time. Uh, We can identify problems with cervical Repositioning sense, but the ability of the of the individual to locate their head where they want to and control that uh, can be off, and we have difficulty, you know, uh, quantifying that. So that the issues are more subtle in the um, idiopathic, non traumatic onset, uh, and that's what makes it uh, difficult there.
0: Oh, it's a big conundrum for clinicians. You are very experienced. <laughs> For someone who's a novice or even someone who has some form of orthopedic experience and um, for some of the highly experienced orthopedic clinicians who do not know much about uh, vestibular functioning of the system, how would you categorize a patient and um, how would you really start off with their evaluation process?
1: That's a that's a great question. Um, I I approach every patient who complains of dizziness from the perspective of it's going to be a diagnostic challenge, and because of that, because of its dizziness, and because dizziness can come from so many sources, I'm going to have a you know I I I basically have a. uh, I have a conundrum, you know, in front of me. And I mean, I I love it because I get to play Sherlock Holmes and I have to, I have to figure out what the mystery, you know, the the answer to the mystery is, but I have to approach it from the standpoint of um, until proven otherwise, anything and everything is in play here. And so my first step is to make sure that their complaints of dizziness, aren't something uh, dangerous uh, because there are dangerous causes of dizziness, they're not common, but but they exist, certainly. And we need to make sure that the patient in front of us is is not um, in need of uh, you know an urgent referral. So I have to go through that thought process first. <clears throat> if they appear to be appropriate for me as a physical therapist, then my next step would be figure out is is this a problem of central origin, or is it a problem of peripheral vestibular origin? um, sort through that. We do have tests and measures for that. And certainly we have for the peripheral vestibular system, some gold standard tests to assess function of the peripheral peripheral vestibular system. Um, and if it turns out to be neither central nor peripheral and they have complaints of neck pain, uh, and I can pick up some, um, measurable impairments in cervical function, whether it's strength, range of motion, control, uh, joint position, joint repositioning and so on. Um, and I can establish a relationship, as I said earlier, between the symptoms or the symptom onset or symptom alleviation between what's going on in the neck and what's going on with their dizziness complaints. Then, um, uh, after I've excluded everything else and I can focus in on the cervical spine, but as I said, it, it's rarely just cervical. So most of the time you're going to find there are components of um, all three, particularly if it's traumatic onset, and so you'll be doing a, a fair amount of uh, vestibular training, probably, and a fair amount of, for example, some habituation, some uh, eye exercises, um, VOR exercises, and then uh, identifying what the cervical spine impairments are and managing those.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's uh, putting everything together. Um, Skill set needs one needs to have all those skill sets so that differential, you can increase that radar and then come down to um, cervicogenic dizziness.
1: Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, uh, people who know me know, I've been a long time proponent of specialist certification. I, I, I ran the orthopedic specialty council for a number of years. Uh, that's the group that's in charge of the OCS exam. Uh, I also was part of the, um, what was a committee is now a board that uh, then credentialed now accredits residency and fellowship education programs. So I'm a big proponent of specialization, but I think cervicogenic dizziness is one that crosses uh, the lines between what a neurologic clinical specialist NCS might do and an OCS orthopedic clinical specialist might do. I think uh, maybe the sports folks, sports uh, SCS, uh, because they have to uh, identify and manage concussion, uh, uh, kind of straddle the line a little bit. Um, you think about pediatric, uh, pediatric specialists, um, because a number of concussions happen in the younger population under 21. But then you also think about, we, we hear a lot about sport-related concussions. And, um, and, you know, it's it's good. I'm glad. I'm glad because that's really driven. Uh, a lot of interest uh, and, and research into concussion. But in as the just statistics are clear that more people suffer concussion from a fall than from sports. And uh, so the geriatric clinician needs to be on top of this as well. So um, yeah, it's a it's a wide ranging problem.
0: I think uh, we need to create a unique certification for this um, yeah. where almost everybody can come in and join and learn. Um,
1: okay. I, I did not pay you to say that, but <laughs> I, will, I will tell you that we tried and uh, it, was, it was not approved. So I think, I think maybe in the future, uh, we may be able to go in that direction. But at this point, um, yeah, we don't have a specialist yeah. uh, in that area.
0: Yeah, very true. And um, on the same lines, I mean, even vestibular rehab is not very common. And sometimes clinicians can say that they're doing vestibular rehab, and yet they do not have the best competency that they should have to treat a patient. So um, I think it's gaining a lot of attention. And I'm hoping in the coming few years, um, people will be more um, aware of it, will be able to um, evaluate patients better and Definitely, give better treatments.
1: I I think it's improving. I think the situation is definitely improving. Like I said, it wasn't that long ago that um, it was a controversial uh, diagnosis, and that's changed. Uh, a lot of people are are really interested in this area. So, um, and I, that's that's. I was so thrilled when you uh, asked me to participate in this podcast because it's it's a lot of it's about getting the word out there, getting people to understand.
0: Yes, uh, we. We are very, very excited to have you because I will tell you out of my own experience, I work in an outpatient rehab setting um, and we have a heavy orthopedic uh, group of um, therapists um, as compared to neuro or pediatrics. And I would have my uh, orthopedic colleagues come to me, Puneet, this is dizziness. Is this vestibular? Is it orthopedic? Should I need to send this, I refer this patient to emergency. I really don't know what to do. And they would often ask me about cervicogenic dizziness. And to be honest, my knowledge itself was, Not good. And if you look at the literature as well, um, there's not much out there to um, be very um, certain that, okay, go do these tests and um, you will know. And so it's good to hear from you that you know, it is a tough diagnosis to uh, come down to. One needs to develop those skills and um, more people are getting aware about it. And um, most importantly, I mean, if, if you have that skill set, one can come down to a, um, this diagnosis of exclusion of um, cervicogenic dizziness. So I'm, I'm very thrilled actually to have you. I actually had a question. When you said that during the, um, this algorithm of going through different tests for vestibular, um, peripheral or central conditions that you want to test for a patient, um, you know, Dix Hallpike pike testing, a lot of people get very um, troubled by doing that head hanging test and, you know, patients will complain, my neck hurts, please be very careful. So have you um, being very careful when you do Dix-Hall-Pike testing with them, do you actually do Dix-Hall-Pike test with them or do you prefer to do something else with this group of population when you suspect, um, you know, what might have cervicogenic dizziness?
1: That's a great question. Um, several things to to um, discuss in that. The first thing would be BPPV for which you would do the Dix-Hall-Pike is one of the very common uh, disorders that can cause dizziness, and it's it's the most common peripheral cause, peripheral vestibular cause of dizziness. I read somewhere, and I can't cite this, but uh, that 50% of people over the age of 65 are going to have BPPV before they die. Um, I don't know if that's entirely accurate or not, but it is certainly is uh, very common in the, in the older individual. Uh, But it also is very characteristic in that it's positionally provoked, which is one of the P's in BPPV. So uh, in your history, if you're careful, you can increase or decrease the likelihood uh, or your suspicion that BPPV exists by asking them about positional changes. And uh, while cervicogenic dizziness can be brought on by changes in, in position, lying down, sitting up, rolling over and things like that. It will also be uh, aggravated by other things that aggravate the neck that aren't necessarily positional, whereas BPPV will not. BPPV has to be a change in position that, that changes the orientation of the semicircular canals and lets the otoconia uh, drift and, and, and move the fluid, you know, bend the cupula and and fire off that um, the uh, vestibular nerve. So, so we can get a high index of suspicion whether or not BPPV exists or not, but there are patients where you are thinking maybe they have BPPV, but they have neck pain. And so I'm, I, I need to determine whether they have it or not. But as you said, and my neck hurts and I don't feel comfortable hanging my head off the table. So, Well, it turns out that, as I said, uh, positional change is important, but it's really positional change of the head. And not the neck, so you don't actually have to hang the neck off the end of the table in order to do a Dix Hallpike. You can actually, you could put a, a Philly collar, a very rigid, you know, solid collar on someone, or even, you know, a halo, and you can still do a Dix Hallpike position because it's not the position of the neck that matters; it's the position of the head relative to gravity. So you have to incline the bed and you have to put bolsters to, you know, put them in, uh, you know, the 45 degrees of rotation and so on. But, uh, so you can do, and I have done a number of times a hull pike with a patient's neck stabilized, which is kind of nice because that, <clears throat> that clearly can't, you know, if they get symptoms, it clearly neck cannot be coming from the cervical spine because their neck is, has not moved at all. So, um, <clears throat> that's that's part actually. It's it's sort of a an extreme example of the head neck differentiation test, which um, can allow you to focus your efforts on the neck or the head. So in this case, we hold the neck still or stable. We move the head around. That reproduces our symptoms. Oh, it's got to be the head movement because the neck didn't do anything. On the other hand, if we hold the neck, I'm sorry, hold the head still and move the neck underneath. Uh, and that brings on the symptoms and we can say, oh, it's, it's gotta be the neck movement that, um, that caused it. And by putting those two tests together, you have to do both of them. You can't do one or the other, but if you put them both together, you can rule in, you know, head and you can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes around head. It's something in the head movement that caused it or neck again, air quotes around neck, something in what you did to the neck that caused the symptoms. And that's the, that, that is, a, I, I find that to be clinically useful uh there's some some people are looking at it now, we're getting some literature to uh, support its use.
0: Um, Would you define or name this test for the audience, uh, Robert? Is it called a joint position error test or um, does it have a specific name when we're so, turning the head? Or- yeah, so
1: the one I just described to you is a head neck differentiation test. So that's, that's what I've been calling it, it for, you know, 15 or 20 years or whatever. Um, there is now an article out that looks at it and you can go find you, there's a YouTube video on it. Um, uh, but they only do one of the two parts of the test, but, um, but it, it's starting to get out there. Uh, but that's a head, neck differentiation test. And Riley did a nice paper in 2017 on the, um, you know, how to, how to diagnose, um, <coughs> excuse me, how to diagnose cervicogenic dizziness. And, uh, they included the head neck differentiation test, um, in it. That was in archives of physiotherapy and I can send you the, the uh, citations.
0: I will definitely put it on our website when we post the podcast. Thank you so much about Mm -hmm. that. Um, Now um, I I also wanted to ask you about, um, you mentioned previously um, about joint position testing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Could you define a little bit more about that?
1: Right. So we should be able to reposition our joints with a certain degree of accuracy um without benefit of other senses so for example in the shoulder you should be able to raise your arm up to a certain position uh put it back down and with your eyes closed reproduce that position within a certain number of degrees uh and and we have some numbers for every joint uh not every joint but uh, many of the extremity joints we also we have had since uh, really the early 90s um we've known that uh, four and a half degrees or less is the amount of error for a healthy individual to be able to reposition their head. So if I, if I have my head in a certain position, neutral a great place to be, you know, uh, head upright, looking straight ahead, neither right nor left, neither up nor down and close my eyes, turn my head as far as I can. I should be able to bring it back with my eyes closed. So I don't get any visual assist there. I should be able to bring it back to within four and a half degrees of my starting position. Anything more than that is considered to be abnormal. And it's been demonstrated, uh, way back as far as 1991, um, that, uh, patients with neck pain have a harder time repositioning their head accurately. So that's become known as a joint position error test or JPE, or also the, um, Head relocation tests or neck relocation tests. Um that essentially um it's very easy to do clinically. You put a laser pointer on the patient's head, uh, fix it so that's pointing at a at a target when the patient uh is in their neutral head position, have them close their eyes, turn their head, come back, and you simply see what the difference is between the starting position of the laser and the end position. And you can measure that. And if it's more than four and a half degrees, then Um, then we would consider that uh, consistently more than four and a half degrees. We consider that to be abnormal.
0: So that sets up the stage for how do we treat these patients?
1: Great. Yeah. The the key thing everyone's been waiting for. Um, If you've got, and as I said, more often than not, way more often than not, you're going to have a combination of problems. So you have to identify what symptoms are coming from where, or at least what systems are involved, okay? So if you have dizziness and some of it is coming from central processing, then we have to manage that. And I think a a classic example, this would be the head and neck are held still and you are asking the patient to do some eye movement. So the only thing is moving is the eyes or even better, eyes are still and you're moving something in front of them. So you get uh, motion in the visual environment of the patient and that causes their dizziness. Hard for me to say that that symptom is being provoked by anything coming from the neck. Certainly the peripheral vestibular system is not being um, stimulated at all. So I would consider that kind of a a central cause. And so we can do habituation exercises for that. Um, The same thing for peripheral problems, Um, typically, Change in movement, you know, the symptoms from a peripheral problem are, are provoked by change uh, in position or movement. So, if we can sort that out, then we'll go ahead and treat the peripheral problem. And then the cervical problems are essentially you have to do a clean, uh, rig- when I say clean, I, I mean uh, a rigorously done um, uh, physical examination to identify if there are any impairments present. And uh, certainly, if you can relate the impairments to symptoms, then you need to treat those. For example, if we do, if we palpate in the upper cervical spine in the extensor suboccipital region, and they go, "Oh, there's my dizziness." Ooh, okay, there we go. We need to manage that area. Or if you do, uh, the patient is lying on the table, and they're saying, "Yeah, my dizziness is a four out of five right now." and you apply some traction without moving the head at all and their symptoms change, generally they're gonna improve with traction. Then you say, okay, great. Uh, I know that this has come from the neck, number one. Number two, guess what? Traction is in your future. So we're gonna treat it with traction. Um, but if you find impairments in muscle function, so um, uh, endurance control or strength, then we need to manage those. Certainly if they've got problems with the joint position sense, Uh, We're going to train them with exercises on that. If they've got uh, cervical mobility issues, particularly segmental ones, we're going to manage those. One of the great tests uh, for cervicogenic headaches, I know it's different, but cervicogenic headaches is uh, a cervical flexion rotation test, which allows us to isolate movement to basically to C1, C2. And we know that if that is limited or asymmetrical, um, that is associated with the presence of cervicogenic headaches. So we can extrapolate that a little bit going on on a limb, understandably, but extrapolate that a little bit and say, well, we can identify that there's an asymmetry, uh, or motion problem at the upper cervical spine using the cranial, uh, cervical flexion rotation test. Then let's go ahead and, and treat that. Uh, and if you want to do it manually or do it through exercise, you know, h- however you want to approach it, but we need to manage that. So essentially, the C spine then is identify what the impairments are, and then uh, you know start attacking them uh, with um, you know appropriate measures. Uh, treat the joints with joint joint restrictions, the joint mobilization, and stretch the muscles as needed work on uh, strength where strength is needed, endurance where endurance is needed, and, um, and then assess the response of the patient symptomatically.
0: How successful are the interventions for people with cervicogenic dizziness?
1: Well, in my hands, 100%, actually, 110%, actually. You know, um, they are, we, we have um, some data not a lot in the literature, there is a systematic review on manual therapy for cervical dizziness, which, uh, suggests that, uh, there is some, it's it's old needs to be redone, but, uh, it was well done. And at the time, even at the time suggested that manual therapy plays a role, um, in improving, uh, cervical dizziness. So, uh, we don't have a ton of data per se, but, uh, we do, have data on cervicogenic indigenous, but we do have data on treating uh, aspects of cervicogenic headaches, aspects of cervical musculoskeletal pain. Uh, if we use the neck pain uh, guidelines from 2017, for example, um, and um, uh, you know, uh, manage the neck issues appropriately, we know we can move people in the, in the positive direction. So we don't have that data specific to cervical cervicogenic dizziness. Same thing with actually concussion, the cervical spine and concussion. But I think that's, that's in the pipeline. Um, those kinds of studies are coming. In the meantime, we have to extrapolate from those studies that we do have that say, hey, if I manage a cervical spine, this cervical spine problem with this intervention, I'll probably get here. And um, so if we can put all that together, um then we stand a really good chance of getting the patients you know much better as well certainly with vestibular uh, rehab uh, we have some good data to suggest for things like vestibular hypofunction certainly with bppv we can be very very successful so we want to incorporate those aspects into our uh treatment plan as needed given the patient presentation
0: now um What do you foresee in the management of cervicogenic dizziness in the near future?
1: In the near future, I see uh, studies that are specifically looking at, so as I said, we have uh, some studies looking at manual therapy for cervicogenic dizziness to have those either either redone or, or let's move those forward. As an example, Uh, In in my view, in my clinical experience, uh, traction helps a ton in these patients. Uh, Carefully applied, manually applied. I don't use traction machines, uh, but carefully applied and uh, paying close attention to what happens to the symptoms when the traction is applied. I think traction will end up being a a very useful tool. Uh, No studies on that yet. Uh, hope to see those soon. Um, in turn, we, we know, uh, Jim Elliott has done a lot of work in, uh, in, in muscle function or, or the, what, um, you know, what happens to the muscles, particularly the upper cervical spine after a whiplash event and also with idiopathic neck pain. And, and so reversing those changes in the upper cervical spine, uh, musculature, I think are going to be important. Uh, for us to look at and for us to address. So I think that's around the corner in terms of supporting it. In the meantime, it just makes sense to try to address those. Um, And I I would hope that we would have at some point a more definitive test for cervical genetic dizziness. Um, And I think we will. People like Julia Treleven, who's at University of Queensland in Brisbane has done a lot of work in this area for a long time. Uh, has published um, a lot of great uh, articles looking at this. Um, uh, Michelle Sterling is is also done a lot of work here. Lystad was the one who's done the systematic review. Uh, Susan Reed has done some work looking at manual therapy. So, um, and I mentioned Riley, uh, who did the, published a paper on how to diagnose cervical gene disease. I, I I think there's more interest. In it. And I think because of that, we're going to be seeing some nice advances in our ability to manage it in the near future.
0: That's great to see so much research happening, even if um, it's recently new. But I think for the future, we have a lot of hope for these patients to be diagnosed faster and more effectively. Thank you so much, Robert, for it was a very informative um, podcast um, for me, and I'm sure for the audience. And um, I am thrilled that I was able to get you on the show. And thank you so much for being with us today.
1: It's my honor to be asked to be on the show. I really appreciate it and appreciate the opportunity to try to get the word out about uh, the condition and, and get people interested in looking at it.
0: Thank you so much, Rob. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this interview,
1: which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the Vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.